Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, the podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. Today we're here with uh, a guest who has, is very familiar with Biola from his undergrad to his graduate work to his family. He is truly a former and present Biola and has written an excellent new book called Unhindered Abundance. Uh, Ken Ba has been a pastor and this new book came out, you might call it just like a spiritual life 101 and especially with what our culture is going through right now with some of the issues related to COVID. It's just a refreshing read to help get us on track with spiritual ideas and our spiritual life. So if you've ever felt like you're in a rut, this is an interview and a book for you. Ken, we really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, you guys. Really great being with you. If you don't mind, can we start by sharing some of the personal experiences that motivated you to write this book? And I ask because you share some very personal stories here that frame it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this book is kind of a culmination of 30 years of ministry. And so one of the, there's there's really two things in, in this regard to personally. First of all, as a pastor, uh, I'm very familiar with how stuck people can be in their spiritual life. You know, for example, you've got a guy who loves Jesus and his wife, but is addicted to pornography. And most of the time, this addiction is identified to a lust problem. And the guy is encouraged to get into the word, find an accountability partner. And while both of those tactics are, are good, they usually don't address the problem. The reality is the porn addiction is not the problem. It's a problem for sure. But the problem is a deep-seated issue in the heart. And as a pastor and a former prodigal myself, I'm deeply committed to helping people identify the root issues that are in their life. So then fast forward to 2014, and I had a really difficult experience. I was a senior pastor at a church in Southern California, a large church. And after 10 and a half years, the elders decided that I didn't have the leadership skills to take the church to the next level. And we went through a what I would consider a very quick process that ultimately ended my termination. Uh, and so that was exceedingly painful and really put me in a place uh, where I really had to do a deeper dive in my own heart. And it just so happens that all of that coincided with me being about halfway through my dissertation. So I think I got to be kind of in the incubator, if you will. Uh, you could say uh, I am a client also. So, Ken, I've, I found your, your book to have just loads of really insightful stuff about our spiritual lives. And I so appreciate you addressing men and women who feel stuck in their spiritual life and don't really know what to do about it and aren't getting a lot of help from their churches in that um, mm-hmm. You use the you use the term unhindered abundance uh, as the title of your book. Can you tell us a little bit more about what what do you mean by that, and what what are you getting at with that? It's really based on Jesus' words in John ten ten that he came to give life abundantly, and the word that Jesus uses here refers to a quality of life, one characterized by love and joy, peace and hope, those types of things, rather than the stuff of life. It's a quality of life. I think it's it's really the picture, uh, in my mind, it's a picture of these 
fat, contented sheep laying on a hill in the sun, having just satiated themselves on all this lush grass, not a care in the world because the good shepherd is watching over them. Uh, it's just this place of shalom, this place of tranquility, of peace, of calm. And my experience, both in my own life, to be honest, as well as just knowing lots of people over the years, is that most Christians don't experience this. I think they they recognize there's an abundant life, but I think most re- think that it's just something that they're going to have to wait for until they get to heaven. And while I don't think we're going to experience the fullness that is available to us all, I do think there's more for us to experience in Christ, in this life, than maybe we ever thought before. We're going to get into what it's like to experience some things you're discussing, but you had a line in the book that kind of gave me pause. I stopped and I really thought about it, where you described what you believe is the greatest barrier to spiritual growth of Christians living in North America. Can you describe what you think that barrier is and why? Well, I think, yeah, Sean, I think there's a lot of things that we could say, but really the greatest one I think is unresolved emotional pain. It's just not something in the evangelical church we have really a theology for. Uh, I think it's the missing ingredient in our understanding of discipleship. I mean, the reality is all of us are broken by sin, whether it's sin that we've committed, whether it's sin that's been committed against us, and that creates pain. And pain needs to be processed. It can't just be glossed over. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, they'll pull Paul's words out of Philippians 3 and just talk about, you know, I forget what's behind me and I just move on. I just run towards the goal. And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about there. I think this idea that the pain from the past has no bearing in the quality of life we're experiencing in the present, that just doesn't bear out in science. It doesn't bear out even scripturally. So Ken, let's be a little more specific if we can. Um, I think this is this is really helpful stuff. Um, and I suspect that there are a lot of believers who are stuck who don't don't recognize it and don't deal with it until it becomes just way too painful not to. I, I think we'd all prefer that people get to a place of dealing with that before it hits before it hits that point. Um, but tell what what in your own life, is your unresolved emotional pain that was a barrier to your own spiritual growth. Well, and that, you know, that was a surprise to me because I thought I really had worked through a lot of that. And then come to find out in 2014, it was like a beach ball underwater. It just kind of came exploding to the surface. So my parents divorced when I was five years old and I'll, Although they didn't intend me any harm, of course, just the collateral damage of all of that created all kinds of problems with struggling with abandonment, with fear, rejection, shame. Uh, It was just kind of this combination of lethal emotions that really followed me and were reinforced through peers, through relationships through life situations over the years that just kind of really created this very robust root structure, if you will, that fed in, that fed the rest of my life with, uh, with real pain, anxiety, depression, you know, fear, and I could manage it, uh, 
at, at times, but then there were other times, especially under stress or exhaustion, just from the rigors of ministry, that it would get the best of me. And I'm curious, you talk about how a lot of uh, Americans do not experience this abundant life. What's at the heart of why so many people don't? Is it lies that we believe from Satan, which you spend some time talking in the book? Is it that we distract ourselves? What's at the root of preventing more Christians, and even beyond the American context, of really experiencing this abundant life that you're talking about? I, I really think we need to normalize this, Sean. I think we need to talk about it. We need to not just throw glib cliches and tried answers at it. I just, I really don't think we have a, a real understanding of the heart. I don't think we have a good theology of how we integrate, how God created us as human beings and what he wants for us in this new life that we have in Christ. So some of it I think is education. Uh, some of it is those that are in positions of leadership and influence, modeling that, being vulnerable, uh, being real, uh, you know, sharing what God is doing in their lives. You know, it's easy as a pastor to preach about things that you struggled with 20 years ago. But what about some of the things you're struggling with now? And I, I know it's not always the right place to do that, right? We got to, we have to be wise and discerning about that. But I, I think trying to prop ourselves up and put this mask on of, I've got it all together is, is dangerous, both for ourselves as well as the congregation. Ken, you've got some fascinating material in here about the contribution of the sciences, particularly the, the neurosciences, to our understanding of, of spirituality. Um, tell us a little bit about how you fleshed that out, the relationship between how we think uh, and, and what, what's, what's actually going on in our brain. You, you bring out the, the concept that our, our, the, brain, the brain has a plasticity to it that can actually be re- shaped uh, and rewired by the way we think. Um, tell us, spell, help, help spell that out for us a bit. How do the neurosciences help us uh, understand our spiritual growth? Well, as, as recent as 20 years ago, most neuroscientists believed that the brain was uh, pretty much set uh, after about, you know, <clears throat> I don't know, first de couple developmental cycles. And what we've discovered, what they've discovered, I'm not a neuroscientist, but what they've discovered is that the brain continues to grow and uh, really throughout life. Now, it definitely can be, uh, it, it's not as quick as we get older because it's full of a lot of other stuff. But, you know, you've got 100 billion interconnected neurons in the human brain that has the capacity to remember everything that's ever happened to you. Uh, even going back, uh, some would say even in the womb. So we have a pretty big hard drive between our ears. And the reality is all of that stuff that's there creates a narrative that over time becomes a thought process that can really become a problem for us. And so there's two dynamics specifically that I talk about in the book. Uh, one's called Hebb's Law and one's called the Quantum Zeno Effect. And Hebb's Law was a, Hebb was a Canadian psychologist and he basically came up with the theory that 
the more you think about something over and over and over again, those neurons that are working together, that are firing together, uh, if you will, create a strong network so that over time, that thought process becomes your default. The quantum Zeno effect is kind of like the superglue. So some refer to that as attention density, but basically the more you think about something, you're just kind of holding that thought in place. Hebb's theory kicks in and now neurons that fire together, wire together. So, you know, in simple English, the more we think a thought over and over and over again, just like a habit, the more we do something over and over and over again, it becomes a default for us. It's not necessarily based on truth. It's not based on reality. It's based on the narrative that we've got playing out in our own head. So Ken, as a part of the solution to this, what we see in Romans 12, where Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It sounds like this problem you've identified with the way the brain works, the solution would be to replace these bad ideas with biblical ideas. How does that process actually work in practice? Well, there's a lot of ways we can work that out. But yeah, you're spot on in regard to the renewing, transforming process that takes place is that we're essentially taking those destructive narratives, distortions, if you will, captive comparing those to the truth of God's word. And then we have a choice. Are we going to believe the lies or are we going to believe the truth? One of the ways that, uh, that I've practically uh, worked on this in my own life is through scripture memorization, meditating on scripture, getting time alone with God. Uh, you know, those are three very specific exercises, if you will, practices that really give the Holy Spirit the room to do that transforming work. We can't grow ourselves, but we can create an environment where that growth will take place. I liken it to the illustration of a farmer. A farmer can't grow a crop, but he can till the soil, plant the seed, water the soil, water the seed, fertilize the seed, right? He can create the environment and then in that environment the seed grows. So the Holy Spirit is the primary agent of change. He is the one that does uh, the heavy lifting in regard to our transformation. But we have a part to play in that. And I think one of the practical ways we do play a part in that is through spiritual disciplines, specifically memorization, meditation, those kind of things. So Ken, let me take you back to uh, your, your statement that uh, unresolved emotional pain is the greatest barrier to spiritual growth. I think there's a lot to that. Um, and some of the things, some of the spiritual disciplines you've described help us change our way of thinking and can actually re- rewire our brain in, in some ways. But I can see the person who has re- really deep hurts, you know, say, the, say a person who was sexually assaulted uh, or somebody with, you know, very, very deep emotional pain, maybe a, a child who was abandoned at a very young age. Uh, where where does the need for sort of really people who deal with these kinds of things professionally, therapists and folks like that, fit in to your concept of spiritual growth here? I think they really, Scott, provide a safe place to be loved and experience love. The context of growth and healing is relationship. It's relationship with God through Christ. It's relationship with each other especially other believers 
that can provide us with what I refer to in the book as safe feedback, which is empathy, compassion, love, grace, mercy, kindness. Uh, And as we are in that kind of environment and we're sharing our pain, that other person is bearing that burden with us, right? Paul talks about weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, Uh, you know, bear one another's burdens. And so I think there is a a way that we help each other in carrying these burdens and sharing these burdens, because that's where, that's where we're vulnerable to the enemy. We are vulnerable to spiritual attack when we're alone or when we feel alone. And that's where we are the most vulnerable, I think, and susceptible to his lies and his distortions. And shame itself uh, may be the most uh, robust weapon in Satan's arsenal. But shame is cultivated and grows in secrecy. And so all of that aloneness that we tend to find ourselves in, either because we're embarrassed to share with others what's happened to us, because we don't have a safe place to go, because of pride or whatever, all of those things hinder that process. But I really think a lot of the healing uh, comes from being with other people who a want to be with us because there's a there's a, a right brain dynamic that takes place when we're with others who are glad to be with us, uh, but it's also a way of helping to carry our pain that we can't carry alone. Whenever we feel alone and overwhelmed, it creates trauma, and so we really need each other. This truth seemed to come out really clearly in the during the COVID pandemic. Being alone, we're seeing loneliness and anxiety and depression increase, and especially with students at bio and high school students I work with. There's this recognition of like we just need to be with each other face to face. And yet, you say that science actually reveals this need for love and relationship. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that would apply to living out the Christian faith? Yeah, Sean, there's two things. One is that everything that gets processed in our brain gets processed first in the right hemisphere, which is where relationship, bonding, attachment, all of those things uh, largely reside, and then moves over to the left hemisphere, which is all the data, you know, words, information, that type of thing. So the, the, it's really the joy center in the brain. The brain is created by God to look for joy. Joy, relational joy, is when we are with people who are delighted to be with us. And that turns these circuits on, if you will, in our brains that then give us a increased joy capacity that makes us resilient to life's pain, suffering, and hardships. So it's really that relational connection that is part of, uh, of the process. The other thing, and I think uh, COVID has really exposed what's already there is we do, Scott, I think you mentioned a few minutes ago, it's really easy for us to stay distracted. Uh, We can stay distracted through work, through, uh, we can try to numb the pain through addictions, drugs, alcohol, pornography, shopping, what have you. And COVID has, to a large extent, put us in isolation. And then all of the things that we kind of had a handle on, if you will, from at least a coping standard, uh, strategy 
has kind of been stripped away. And so now we're having to face what's actually really there without all the distractions. That's really helpful. And that's a natural way to look at this. That makes sense. I've got one more question for you. One of my favorite parts of your book was the story that you shared about reconciliation with the board and just humbling yourself and restoring that. I think it's a powerful way of how all these principles we're talking about can really play out. So would you mind just kind of sharing that story a little bit with us and what you learned from it? Yeah. You know, that was one of the great experiences of my life, honestly, because I think it was an opportunity for us as spiritual leaders to together get something right. Uh, Meaning that we publicly apologized. We owned our stuff. We, uh, took communion together, we cried together, we loved on each other. It was a beautiful moment. And the people that were there, I would say, it was very moving for all of us. Um, you know, I just, I, w- I went into, well, after I was terminated, I just felt betrayed. I was angry. I felt, you know, like I, I had been victimized, really, that I had just kind of been the victim of the worst of the worst in regard to behind the scenes dynamics of a church. And the first few months afterward, I was a wreck. I couldn't sleep. I was really struggling with anxiety. I was catastrophizing everything. You talk about having a negative narrative going on in my head. You know, it was just this picture of being homeless and unemployed, you know, being terminated as a senior pastor does not look good on a resume. And so I just really was struggling with what I thought was the reality of a very bleak future. And it was one morning I was on the beach. It was early in the morning. It was still dark out. And I'm sitting there crying out to God, trying to get a a bearing on what is going on. And I felt the Lord uh, strongly impress upon my heart. Can I want you to begin a reconciliation process with the elders? And I got to tell you guys, I was ticked. I'm like, what? (laughs) It's like, God, have you not been paying attention here? I'm the one that should be apologized to. I'm the one that should, somebody else should be initiating this. This is not, this is not my gig here. And the longer I sat there fuming, the more I realized, oh man, he's right. So that took about a half an hour where I was wrestling with God over that. And I was afraid to actually leave uh, my place there and go home to write the emails. So, cause if I, I was afraid that if I did that, I might not do it. And this was one of those times where I'm sure you guys have had a few of these in your life. It's like, I've clearly heard from God to not act on this is going to be a, not a good thing. And so I, I sat there and I texted each of the elders or seven elders. I texted each of them a very simple text. And I said something like, um, I'd like to ask you if you'd meet with me for coffee so that I can own my stuff, my part of this process. I said, that's my only agenda. I'm not looking to blame anybody. I'm not looking to attack you. I'm not looking to defend my position. I just want to own my stuff. And I really felt, guys, I have preached for years about forgiveness, about God's desire for unity in the body of Christ, uh, for us to to truly be brothers and sisters as the family of God and work hard stuff out. And it really gave me the opportunity to kind of say, look, Ken, are you going to 
put your money where your mouth is here. All these years of preaching, you know, are you really going to step up and put into practice those things that you have encouraged so many people to do over the years? So it was kind of a come to Jesus time for me uh, in a lot of ways. And then God just, so I ended up meeting with each of those elders. Every one of those conversations went better than I expected. They then invited me uh, into a couple meetings with all of them together, which I had I had some representation with me because I was still a little nervous about getting into a group with these guys. And we really came to a place where they invited me to come back uh, on a Sunday morning and we had a reconciliation service. It was mm-hmm. probably one of the sweetest two hours I've ever experienced in the local church. That is beautiful. I loved hearing that. When you read that story, I just paused and was like, oh my goodness. It just, I want our audience to know that this honesty that you're bringing to this, and I think really just this humility is reflected in the book. So for anybody listening to this, if you felt like you've just been spiritually in a rut, you want to grow, or you're not in a rut and you say, you know what? I just want to understand what scripture says, understand the science a little bit more deeply, and see how to start practicing out the things that we preach and believe in scripture, then Unhindered Abundance is an excellent resource. We want to commend it to you. Ken Baugh, thanks so much for coming on the show and for joining us. Great. Thanks, guys. Really great being with you. I appreciate it. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University offering programs in Southern California and online, including the new fully online Master of Divinity. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.